Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me is the professor, Dr. Alan Jameson. Good day. Uh, good day. Oh, you're you're naturalizing. I'm not actually in Australia yet. I'm in purgatory right now. But purgatory is located in a hotel in Australia. It's a five-star purgatory, but yeah, on a 28th <laughs> floor. Wonderful view of a place I haven't been to yet. It's right there. It's tempting, like a Christmas present. Yeah, day 12 today. Almost there, mate. Almost Freedom Day. I'm hoping they're going to be fireworks, but apparently not. The good news is Tim McDonald's coming and pick me up. Remember Tim McDonald's from the deepest interview ever done? He's going to be outside waiting with his ute. This will sort of lead into our topic. What is the first thing you're going to do when you have your freedom? Before you're immediately set upon by the enemy. You can't because I've got three kids until... I'd just like to go down the pub on my own and be that guy <laughs> in the beer garden drinking a little bit more than he probably should on an afternoon. At 3pm on like a Tuesday, blind drunk. Yeah, but find a bar where there's no music, no nothing, just quiet, yeah. just outside. Even if it's raining, even if it's a full-on storm, doesn't matter, just outside. It's just quiet. about the drinking. A man in, a man, a man in his beer and he's alone with his thoughts. <laughs> I think that's what I'll do. Okay, nice. Yeah, so as soon as the door of the hotel opens and everyone bundles into Tim's car, I'm just going to leg it. <laughs> just <laughs> go in one door, straight out the other door and run. That thing we keep trying not to talk about, there is a big bit of news about that. Do you want to dive into some news? Yeah, so much we're not talking about deep sea mining anymore. They won't let us. They're moving too fast now. They've been sitting on this for like 50 years. Now they're doing something every other day. Yeah, it is getting interesting. But yeah, big important motion was called for a moratorium on deep sea mining and it was adopted by a whole bunch of people at the IUCN World Conservation Congress. Apparently 81 governments voted for a moratorium and 18 voted against, with 28 neither way. But amongst the NGOs and civil society organisations, the vote was 577 for and 32 against. So that's sending out a pretty strong message that the world doesn't really want this. I'm really interested to know who the countries are who voted against it. That was going to be quite interesting. Yeah, it's going to be quite revealing, I guess. But apparently that's confidential, except the UK, because it was published in The Guardian. So the UK, unfortunately, have said they're not interested in moratorium. So we're on the naughty list. You are. I'm in Australia now. Oh, uh, that's true. You got away just in time. I found another deep sea story, though, which is really good at offsetting that very serious story. Go on, cheer me up. Have you ever heard of a pig-faced shark? I have. I have, but tell They're me more. beautiful. Italian sailors were left shocked and confused after they pulled this thing up off the coast of Italy. And of course, the photos have gone viral. And it's a true wonder of nature. It's a beautiful, beautiful animal. And it's basically a shark, a fat shark as well, a fat, stubby little thing with the face of a pig. And that's the pig face shark. And it's actually called an angular rough shark called Oxynotus centrina. It's one of these, it's like a bit like a pug. It's so ugly, it's kind of kind of beautiful yes. in its own, its own little way. It's a snuffler, right? And apparently when you pull them out of the water, they do grunt. Huh. Like like a pug. Like you'd imagine a, a drowning pug. <laughs> <laughs> a grunting pug. So yeah, it's worth, it's worth looking up. Look up the pig face shark and have a good look at that. It's just, a, it's just so ugly, it's beautiful. Oh, I like that. I like that it grunts as well. It, it always surprises people when fish are a bit vocal about being caught. Yeah. And let them... I'd imagine it kind of... This would be a snorty type of grunt, you know, because it's got those big piggy nostrils. In fish, they can use the swim bladder, but lacking in sharks, so it's probably like grinding its teeth or something to make a little grunty growl. Yeah, that or just a weird mix of water and air in its throat. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a sound it makes underwater. It's, it's doing the equivalent of us drowning, which is never going to be quiet. <laughs> Speak from experience. Drowning is louder than you'd expect. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Last time I recorded it with a hydrophone, I found it surprisingly loud. There was another deep sea fish pick that went a bit viral 
on Reddit, at least I saw. And it's weird because I'm just normalized to these animals, but it was a big eyed grenadier and a fairly nice looking one. But of course, the camera was like really close to its eyes and oh, yeah. made, it, made it look all creepy. But it was just these animals seem familiar to me now. So I see that and I'm just like, hey, it's you rather than uh, getting creeped yeah, out. You, by see, them. you see this one's like Russian sailors pull up monsters from the deep. And you're like, yeah, it's a Corifonoides repestus. It's like seeing the regulars. It's like, oh, there he is. Yeah. Oh, and that's one of them. So what we're going to talk about today, Tom? Today, it's going to be a bit of a PSA, a bit of a public service announcement, something I know we both get asked a lot and something I don't think people are giving enough support on, which is how to cope with going to sea for the first time. Because it's an incredible experience and I worry that a lot of people through just really tiny little mistakes of like packing or a little social faux pas on like day one and it ruins the experience for them and going to sea is amazing it's great but yeah you can have a rotten time if you're not prepared yeah we've all done those jobs there do you want to know my worst one yeah actually for this very thing i worked out that i've done 67 expeditions now Nice. Which total nearly four years. Oh. Isn't that a bit scary? So what's your day count? I don't know, I worked it in weeks, but then I deleted it because I didn't think it was worth keeping, but it came out about nearly four years. Jeez, four years at sea. My worst one was when I agreed to do some camera deployments in the North Sea in an area which is now the Buzzard platform. So this was a pre-survey when they were just before they were going to build the, the oil rig known as a Buzzard platform. And we thought we were really clever by getting a really cheap vessel on a charter and it was a whitefish trawler out of Pierhead and there was, I think it was three of us or four of us did the job and there was three crew and it was just awful I don't know if you've, if you've noticed that trawlers are really thin but really high and really short and they've got this really odd motion and the air conditioning inside the, the boat had put long pack tents so your bed is just always wet because it's just like so humid and all the condensation and everything else so you're never clean ill constantly for about eight or nine days or something like that and it was just ugh, it was just nasty Never again. Plus, you absolutely stink of fish by the end of it because it was a proper trawler. I remember yeah. afterwards, because I came back and I, I had a shower and everything else and all the rest of it. I thought, right, I'll go down to the pub and meet up with everybody. And I think, and I thought I smelled beautiful. Got down to the pub and just walked in and everyone was like, what? <laughs> you stink. <laughs> and I was like, how can I still smell this stuff? Oh, it just saturates you. I think it's because it's like carried in oil. I think it just blends with the oils in yeah. your skin. It's multiple, multiple washes. To be honest, I don't think it ever washes out. I think you just shed that layer of skin. <laughs> Well, the trick with mackerel is to wash it off with cold water, not hot water. I still don't know if it's a thing, but have you ever seen the the bars of soap that are like made out of stainless steel? Isn't that just a block of stainless steel? Yeah, but it's kind of like as a gesture made into the shape of a bar of soap. But apparently that's good at getting rid of the fishy smell. You like wash right. your hands as if it's a bar of soap, but I'm still I'm still not sure if that's a bit of a urban legend. Well, apparently, if you use hot water, it just the oils just seep right into your every little imprint in your fingers and stuff like that. It's the same with garlic, isn't it? Wash garlic with cold water. Anyway, what was your worst? Oh, there's a good few. I think there was there was lots of bad ones in different ways. The one thing that sprung to my mind when you were talking about the trawler was I can remember like the one little communal space was the old fish hold in a converted trawler. So it's just this big, long space. And so people going a bit stir crazy like zoo animals would run up and down it for exercise. And there was a rickety old rowing machine. So I was having a good go on that just to try and work off some anxious energy. And it was also the smoking area. So there is this, <laughs> this massive Russian guy with nothing else to look at because it's just a big empty hole watching me row as hard as I can and blowing cigarette smoke at me. <laughs> like not right deliberately. Yeah, it wasn't being mean. But yeah, that was just us sharing a, a community was he just, was just watching you with a smoking frown on pretty much yeah yeah just a good pondering frown yeah so that was good fun i can remember a client threatening to drown me with my own gear that was good fun but let's not dwell too much on the on the negative let's let's reinforce that it is a tough life but it's not horrible we wouldn't still be doing it it is one of the best things we do so actually getting on to the tips i cast a net over social media nice just asking all the offshore people i've worked with 
what are your tips for going to see, particularly the ones that maybe aren't that apparent but can totally change the course of, of a trip. So the prep before you go, if you are sending your own site to gear, it's a good idea to put anything bulky along with your gear so you're not limiting your own luggage. So books, a few treats, things to cheer you up. Anything you squirrel away in the bulky stuff, Alan? You quite often put like a, a warm jacket and waterproofs and a spare pair of boots and things like that. Yeah, I'll say though. PPE. Yeah, PPE. PPE. Yeah, you don't want to be carrying yeah. a hard hat with your carry-on. No home comforts, though. We don't do home comforts. No. Treats. When you ever had treats at sea? We're going to have a very different opinion on this because I know how light you travel. I know you just need the clothes on your back and you've never used all your kilograms. Not even not even near it, no. Yeah, you can go away for eight weeks with a 15 kilogram bag. I did a job last year, actually, and I arrived on the ship in Barcelona and realised I forgot to pack trousers. Oh, nice. Just no trousers at all. I had to run out and try and find a shop in, on a Sunday afternoon in Barcelona with sold trousers. That's how light I was travelling. I'm just not even bringing trousers anymore. I think rather than... A testament to how light you travel is a testament to how little thought you put into it, maybe. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I'm There was this. a comment by the captain that, um, that made me one step closer to being a professor when you actually forget your trousers. Well, there you go, you're there now. Yeah, it worked. Really good bit of advice from Grant was to go to the dentist. I think still the major reason for a medivac or a medical issue at sea is teeth. And if you're going away for two months, something that's a little niggle or something you haven't even noticed yet, you don't even feel, can get really, really uncomfortable. And without medical treatment, it can get horrible fast. You, you had a, a tooth issue at one point, didn't you, Alan? I did. I had my whole face filled with pus, abscess on a tooth. And then the medical emergency hotline thing told the ship's captain to give me a antibiotic that doesn't work in the lower jaw. So it just got worse and worse and worse. And eventually it got taken off somewhere in Ireland. The guy just took one look at me and went, wow, I've never seen anything like this before and just pulled the tooth out right there and then. Was it like popping a cork? Did the rest yeah. follow it? He actually said oh. to me, do you, want, do you want a mirror to see this? I even went delirious for 24 hours. Yeah, this Wait. isn't a funny story. Like, this was a medical emergency. There's a reason they got you off. Quite often, especially on long trips, because this is such a common cause for medical emergencies, they'll ask for a certificate from your dentist just to say that everything's looking okay. Order extra prescriptions. Quite often, you'll get your prescriptions at a regular interval, but if you're going away for six weeks, if you're going away for eight weeks, even if you're going away for three weeks, like plan for two months, you know, just in case. And it is a quite a high-stress environment. So migraines, things that are related to stress, have plenty of medication for that because chances are you'll you'll have a, a few episodes. I think the most important thing... Tell your mum you love her. you go away... No, 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 no. The, <laughs> the most important thing is that even if the ship tells you it has internet, just assume that it, a, it doesn't, B, it doesn't some of the time, C, it doesn't most of the time, and D, when it does have it, it might not be very good. So yeah. put your out-of-office reply on anyway. <laughs> definitely, yes, definitely bounce. Because the amount off. of ships have been on, they're like, oh yeah, it's full, we've got full broadband and everything else, 10 miles offshore. Yeah. And you've told everyone, ah, don't worry, I've got internet. And then suddenly you come back to quite a lot of irate messages of people thinking you're ignoring them. It's intense work anyway, so you, if you're doing 16-hour days and then trying to juggle all your regular emails, so yeah. yeah, definitely put your out-of-office on and warn loved ones to expect no contact so they don't freak out. I do. I mean, I, I tell people who, when I'm away, I've got nothing worth saying anyway. So if I'm going away for two months, don't expect me to call very often because I really don't have anything to say. Well, I kind of semi-preferred the days where you didn't really have much communication. You know? Well, at least it was a definite thing. But this whole thing about you should be able to be contactable at 24-7 is stretched offshore now. You're so involved in what you're doing, you don't need that. And I love the situations now where like, 
you're all processing a sample or you're, you're working on deck or something like really important is going on and somebody leans out of, of a door and just yells like, oh, the internet's back on and everyone drops what they're doing and picks up their phones to try and yeah. send that message that they've been trying to send for the last three days. And uh-huh. I, I kind of get it, but it's it's not the time. Like expect not to have contact and tell the people who love you not to worry if they don't hear from you. We had one fairly recently where it had brilliant internet. We just weren't allowed on it. Do you remember That's that? Right. We even checked. We're like, you looked at the boat specs and we're like, oh yeah, this will be fine. We'll be in contact. But we weren't allowed on the network because we were dirty. That was weird, wasn't it? It was weird. Shall we go on to packing? Yep. Izzy and Grant recommended packing flip-flops for the shower. My only addition to that would be, and only for the shower. Don't go around a boat with open-toed shoes. But I quite like a comfy pair of slippery shoes just for in the living areas, but they've got to be closed toes. So I know they're terrible, but Crocs do quite well offshore. They've got good grip and they can wipe them clean. Can I just say, Tom, this is absolutely podcast gold. Sorry. Our audience is going to double when they hear this. (laughs) I thought this was useful. You've got to look after your feet. Really? Are they, yeah. are they important to you? Military people will agree with me here because your steel toe cap boots, your deck boots will never fully dry. And so you need comfy, dry socks, enough of them to swap them out. Do you use that little spray stuff for inside your shoes? You know, freshen them up a bit at the end of the day? I do, but that's for everyone else. That's not, <laughs> I knew it. I knew that's you not would. for me, that's for you. James said to research the electrical outlets. They'll usually be the same as the country the vessel is registered to. Pack a few adapters. You know, those world ones where you you sort of have multiple countries in one adapter. They're really handy and just have that in your travel bag. And there will be clean power on the vessel, which is more regulated. So that's for your delicate stuff, your instruments and your laptops. And then there is just sort of more general power. Nicola said some form of entertainment, which could be very varied. We've we've known people like take crochet offshore, load up a Kindle with loads of books. I gave a friend of ours like all of Game of Thrones before he went away for six weeks and he like came back with an accent. It changed him. So uh, a little bit of a world you can escape to be that books or box sets. I'm opposite. I don't watch telly at all when I'm away. I think it's interesting we're both on this because we approach offshore very differently, I think. I don't really settle in. Even even last time when I was on the ship for 88 days, I never run back my bag. Yeah, you never do. You live out your bag. Just pack comfy clothes, hard-wearing clothes. The washing machines tend to be quite industrial. All of your clothes are going to be quite aged by going to sea. But I do reckon, like, pack one nice outfit. You might have a night in port. You might have a party on the boat. It's nice to feel human again. Annie said lip balm and moisturizer because the air is very dry. It tends to be processed in air-conditioned air. Anything else, Alan? You pack so light, I can't think of anything else. A mug. And the trick is don't ever wash it because if you don't ever wash it, no one will steal it. So very you've got to make sure your mug is absolutely filthy. A distinctive yet filthy mug. In your hand carry, have one change of clothes because there is a good chance your bag might get lost if your bag doesn't make it to the ship. Tom, not only happens to you. It does, but it's happened like multiple times now. But luckily we had merch on the pressure drop, so I just became like five deeps branded as I wore nothing but the t-shirts. Anything that is crucial, so your laptop, your data drive, things like that, you should be probably carrying them on your person anyway. A few dollars. Most places seem to accept dollars just in case of emergencies. And bribes as well. Remember, there's a lot of countries which are extraordinarily corrupt, so it's sometimes good to have a big wad of cash in your pocket for when you get rolled over by the local police force. Now that's really valid. I have a folder on my hard drive and on a pen drive called the Offshore Panic Pack, which is all the installers for the software I really, really need. So if my laptop explodes... 
I can still do my work because I've got the installers for the software I need. Software more and more is needing to phone home to like activate itself. So the new Adobe packages, they tend to stop working when you've got no internet. Your Spotify will only last for 30 days, which is quite funny if you go to see for over 30 days because everyone's like, hey, I've got my music, it's great. And then there's a music drought at exactly 30 days and everyone is just desperate for like, did you bring files? Did you bring files? I'll listen to anything. Trance, yeah, 90s trance, I'll have that. So yeah, a lot of software, if it has to phone home, will like stop working at random intervals. Like ArcGIS, for example, that, that went yes. on me last year. I'd imagine uh, sort of SolidWorks and things like that are probably the same now as well. Yeah, they just lock you out halfway through a trip and there's the only way to get around it is to get back online. And even if you do get online, quite often the file size and the transfer is so huge you'll never get it anyway. And even if there is decent internet, quite often they will block that at the sort of router level on the vessel because, of course, if everyone's downloading their Spotify playlist or their phones are updating and things like that, it's just going to chunk the whole thing. So some things, even if you do have internet, some things just won't work because they're actually being blocked. It's not lack of internet. It's because they're trying to manage the traffic. This thing's bouncing around satellites and it's the most expensive internet you've ever used. So, yeah, you're not going to send massive videos through whatsapp i just got careful careful it's not too patronizing remember and take your toothbrush my first one on the etiquette section is quite patronizing but it's something people don't do what? even if you're feeling really rough and you're really busy you've got to wash it's a confined space if it gets to a point you will be dragged from your bunk and washed at force oh yeah i was part of that yeah uh, we, we bundled a guy into his bed and sprayed him down with as many cans of deodorant as we could find. He actually wore the same clothes day and night for seven straight days. He didn't even get undressed to go to bed. And it was four people in a cabin on a very small boat. Unacceptable. Well, you're like Annie's one. Annie said to pack condoms, but be discreet because everyone knows everyone's business. I think we should speak to someone who's relatively new to the game to get their perspective on what it is like to be at sea. And work at sea too. Not just to be at sea. Proper sailor. With loads of experience in a short space of time, because she's been at sea for, was it a year in total? Was it two, six months since? I think it's a year. We should ask her that. So that's a lot of experience in a short time. So who are we going to talk to? <laughs> who fits that criteria, that incredibly specific criteria? I've got no one in mind. Well, the backstory to this, do you want a backstory? Yeah, tell me a plot. Give me a trailer. Well, on our ship, we've been working on the last few years. We had a deckhand called Brendan, who by all accounts is a bit of a legend. However, he wasn't your normal run-of-the-mill deckhand because he was also a marine attorney who fancied taking some time out to go around the world and have adventures with us lot. So last year, unfortunately, our resident deckhand slash marine attorney decided to go back to the courtroom so he, he could deal justice with a swift hand and he was replaced. So I guess we figured we'd probably just get a, a normal run-of-the-mill deckhand, but that wasn't the case. Now, they found a replacement, and because it's now traditional, because it's happened twice now, that the new person is not just any old deckhand. She's a YouTuber, and she's been documenting her career at sea so far, and she's been already on two rather prolific research vessels, gaining popularity as a science communicator. She's a good lot of fun, and she has at least one really good tattoo. But we'll hear about that later. So I think we should get on the phone to sunny old Kentucky and phone our friend, who goes under the name of Larkin. Today we have Larkin on the podcast. Hello, Larkin. Hello, hello. How are you? It is really good to be here. I am fantastic. How are you all? Uh, I'm all right. It's just the first podcast we've done from two different hemispheres. So, Larkin, first of all, tell us about yourself 
and about your double life as a deckhand and a YouTube star. So um, kind of like my origin story is about eight years ago, I was working in Chicago uh, as a bartender and I was looking for a change. Like I, I traveled quite a bit, but it, I wanted to travel for my job. So I went to an open house for a cruise ship, like a big Norwegian cruise lines ship open house. And I got the job as a bartender on board. And so I go to the ship, I go to Hawaii and I'm on this new ship with, you know, a thousand crew members and 2,500 guests. It was mammoth. I ended up working in the gift shop there for a couple of years. The whole time I was there, I was happy being on the ship, ship life, but I wanted to do a different job. And I saw the deckhands and what they were doing. And they were always walking around with like cool power tools and they were driving the tender boats and they were up in the bridge with the captain and all the mates. And it just seemed amazing. Like what an adventurous life. So I started talking to uh, these guys and gals about how they got started and ended up going to a smaller cruise ship where I was an unlicensed deckhand and then moved my way up the ladder, becoming, you know, like a licensed deckhand and getting my small boat captain's license and things like that. But my heart was always in science. Like I always wanted to, to get involved with the science world, but I really wasn't sure how I was going to do that. And it turns out like my side door into the science world, instead of becoming like a marine biologist, I ended up working on research vessels. And that was a game changer. You know, I got the backstage pass to be around these amazing scientists, which I like see you all as really like these rock stars. I mean, you all are doing these amazing things and discovering new worlds and new solutions to problems that we have. I mean, it's just awesome. And to be so close and directly involved in that experience was uh, such an amazing experience. So amazing, in fact, that I decided to take out my phone and start recording. I, I had to, like, I, could, I couldn't help myself. I was walking around, like, just following the scientists, like their little shadow. And I mean, I asked them, you know, are you, is it okay if I'm, you know, if I'm right here? And they just thought it was really, they thought it was kind of funny that I was so interested in it. And so I think that's a neat dynamic when you have scientists coming on board these vessels. Sometimes they think that the boat crew is very fascinating and we think that you all are so fascinating. It was neat kind of like bridging that gap and asking them if I could film them. And they were like, yeah, sure, that's fine. And really happy to answer all of my questions. So I start filming and I start making these little YouTube shows because this is also during COVID times. We weren't doing as many cruises as we normally do. So I had more time dockside. So I started editing and making these uh, these YouTube episodes. When I showed the scientists the videos that I, I created, he was pretty blown away and asked me to actually make some outreach videos. And I had no idea at the time what outreach was. And as he explained outreach, I told him he was explaining my dream job. <laughs> Are you kidding? People get paid to like make videos doing this and I could get involved in this world? Yes. And so, so I, I made his videos. And since then, I'm meeting more and more scientists and uh, branching out further and further. And now I've started doing kind of like a side business as a, as a videographer, science communicator. So I'm still a sailor on the ship, which gives me like a, a unique perspective. And eventually one day I would like to be the videographer full time and making these science communications videos full time. That's amazing. It's oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's yeah. But on this, on this particular episode, Tom has been wittering on about... Alan wasn't impressed. He didn't find it interesting. <laughs> I didn't find it interesting at all. But Tom's been wittering on about what it's like to be at sea. I don't know, I don't know how to rephrase this. To basically, can, you, can you talk no, about what Tom's just talking about but make it sound more interesting? Yeah, do what Tom was trying to do, but better. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to gather like advice for, say, a, I had a scientist in mind, really, but advice for someone's first trip offshore. And yeah, it was really boring advice, but it's all advice that I've seen. It ruined okay. someone's experience. Tom, I've got you. I've got Dude, you. Let's deal with the first question. Is, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. What do you take? For me, a lot of times when you're on these ships, 
you are in places, you're going to be in remote, like even when you're in port, you're going to be in remote ports. So all the essentials that you want from home, you're going to want to take with you. You're not going to be able to just like buzz to the store and grab a bottle of shampoo. So make sure that you have all the things that you need. I've learned to do things, a lot of things digitally. You know, I have, you know, my, my Kindle, uh, I have lots of music and things to do like with my phone and my computer. Um, so make sure that you have like all the essentials, all of the things that you don't even think about, like special snacks or anything like that. So I also take things depending on how long you're there for. I would recommend taking little things from home. Now, this is just me. I like to kind of nest when I get on the ship. So I have like full on, I have little Christmas lights and an oil diffuser. And like I have pictures and things that make me feel like, you know, more at home because you're at sea for a long time. So I don't know if that's for everybody, but for me personally, I like to bring like a little bit of home, all the essentials that I'm going to need for the next, you know, four months and uh, comfy clothes. Like definitely you want to bring some clothes that may be a little bit warmer than you think that you're going to need because when you're at sea at night, especially there's a lot of wind, you know, and there could be rain, like the weather is always changing. It's very dynamic on the water. So you want to bring, you know, you know, your rain jacket and a couple of extra layers, even if you're going to be in a warm climate like Guam, you might want those extra layers. I can honestly say I have never taken Christmas lights. You're missing out. You're totally, it's a totally really? different experience. Dr. J. Oh my gosh. Really? It's like a party in your room. It's awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because those rooms, right? It's like the bare minimum. It's really harsh light. It's really bad lighting, you guys. You want it to be, you know, like creating a warm atmosphere, especially like for me personally, you know, I'm out there for 12 hours at a time and I'm out there like in the sun or like in the elements. And when I come home, I'd like to open the door to my room and it's like this little oasis. I've got the diffuser going, the lights. It's just, it's, it's nice. It's a little bit of Zen, my little Zen den on the ship. Your cabin at your end of the corridor is very, very different to the cabin I had in my end of the corridor. <laughs> we touched upon how Alan copes with offshore and it very rapidly became apparent that he's not a good example. I just walk on as if I found a ship on the way to the shops. <laughs> and then, oh, this looks nice. <laughs> yeah, well, this looks nice. Go on there, come back six weeks later and go, oh, well, that was nice. Some of the comforts that people were sent in were, were really specific. So someone said that offshore pillows tend to be a little bit grotty. So he always packs a nice <laughs> pillow. Uh, someone oh. else packed a comfy folding chair for just being yeah. able to sit and relax on deck. Our mate Malcolm Clark has a very special stool that he always takes offshore with him. For, he does. <laughs> for working. That's only because it's the right height. He's a very tall wow. man. He's a very, <laughs> okay. he's a very tall man. He's his own special Malcolm stool. But see, those are things that they know that they're going to need every day. So they brought them, right? So if you find that there's something that like you just, like if you're a fussy sleeper, then yes, squeeze up the memory foam pillow and stuff it in the bag. If you're a yoga person, like you want to like stretch out because that's something that it has gotten me through uh, working on ships, like still being able to uh, get my physical fitness in small places, bring a yoga mat. Like one thing that's helped me out a lot over the years is finding the Facebook pages for that particular ship. Uh, usually a ship will have a Facebook page and through that Facebook page, and you can ask them like, hey, like specifics about the ship. Like, hey, does the ship have this? Does the ship have that? So let me just write that down. Yoga mat, Christmas lights. Yeah. To put a bit of context on this, I quite like yes. a bit of yoga and I once did it outside within vision of Alan's office and the window flew open and as I'm enjoying yoga with the class, he yells out, for God's sake, son, people can see you. <laughs> so that, that's where Alan stands on yoga. Oh, I remember that. And we had an instructor, like there was somebody external there teaching this class. <laughs> somebody actually like... paid to come and do the class. <laughs> For God's sake, son, people can see you. <laughs> so go, going going back to what little structure we actually have to this interview, what I was going to ask was, what's your most and least rewarding part of the job? Let's start, let's start with the bad first. The least rewarding is, it's a lot of dirty work. 
So coming on board as a deckhand, people don't realize this. They see a lot of like the glamorous shots that I put on, you know, on my like Instagram and stuff where I'm doing all this really cool stuff and I'm in these amazing locations. However, the reality is a lot of times you're just like a glorified janitor of the sea. <laughs> Are you saying that social media is lying to us? No, that there's good, there's good and there's bad. And we're going to talk about the good okay. too. And also, and this is, this is my personal thing, because being a female in this world, there's not a lot of us. Every ship that I've been on has been different, but there's usually almost always like that air of like, there is like a little bit of sexism that's alive and well on ships. Uh, so that's something that has been, it's been hard to deal with, but it's also been very eye-opening. And I'm glad that I've had the experiences that I've had because I want to inspire other women and anybody who thinks that they can't do this kind of work. It's been challenging, but it's also lit a fire to make a difference. So that's been, that's been good. Now for the good stuff, oh my gosh, like, like there's so many, there's so many meeting amazing people, getting to go to these very unique locations. I mean, I, I've been to places that people would only dream of. I've taken a dip in the water above the Mariana Trench, you know, like who can say that? Me. Not a lot of people. Okay. So <laughs> maybe the company, wrong, wrong audience, <laughs> but, but normal, you know, a lot of people can't say that kind of stuff are like finding polar bears in Svalbard. I mean, Alan, you might've done that too. Yes. I don't know, but. <laughs> it's not a competition. <laughs> Come on the ice. Okay, one upper. <laughs> um, so so there's, there's, there's just a lot of like the experiences and, and the confidence that it's built in me to like, you know, I thought this was impossible to, to live the lifestyle that I live currently. And it, now that I'm here, it only propels me to like want to go bigger and bigger, you know, and to discover more and inspire more people. So that's been the, the good, the bad and the ugly kind of thing. Brilliant. Everyone who goes to see knows full well that things get weird. What's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you? All right. So let me set up the scene. We're on the ship. This is while we were in Guam. The ship is docked. So we're, we're dockside. We're tied up. And I was on gangway watch. And that's something the deckhands have to do. The ABs have to do on board to make sure that there's, you know, it's kind of like security watch, right? Make sure that nobody, you know, gets on the ships that's not supposed to be there. So I'm on, I'm on watch, gangway watch with my, my deck partner, Baby June. And we hear all this commotion coming from the top deck. I mean, it's, it's at night also. This is around like 12, 12, 1230 at night. And we were hearing like this loud like laughter and yelling and singing. And we're like, what is going on? And I said, hey, baby June, can you go check that out? And he did. He comes back and he reports to me that he doesn't really understand what's going on. That all he's like, everybody is quiet. And then all of a sudden they get really loud. It's got to be more than that. There's got to be something going on. Oh, by the way, there's a bar on the top deck. That's probably a big part of the story. There's a bar on the top deck. So I have him you know, take charge of the gangway and I walk upstairs to, to investigate myself. And as I walk upstairs, I'm hearing like yelling, laughter, people are having a good time. And I see Dr. J, you know, over in the corner, kind of like just shaking his head. And I said, what's going on? And you responded, Dr. J, I think, I think I did a bad thing. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think I, I, I might have, I think, I think I did a bad thing. I think I made a mistake. And I said, what happened? And Dr. J goes on to explain that uh, that somebody thought it would be a good idea to take. Uh, we had just gotten all these new pins, like uh, promotional pins for the ship, uh, with you know the pointy pointy pins, like you would put into you know like your your hat or you know backpack or something. So somebody thought it would be a good idea to use this to pierce their ears, and they wanted Dr. J to do the piercing. And and you know what? I gotta say, you stepped up to the plate and you did it. You pierce, you pierce this guy's I, to ear. To be fair, I only did it because I'm the only person on the ship who has molecular grade ethanol who could have done it cleanly. It's still not medical stainless steel. It's still like a chatch key. 
<laughs> it totally was. It totally was. <laughs> and so I go, then, then as I walk up into like the party that's going on, all the guys yell, oh, Larkin, do you have any studs? We need earring studs because more people want to do it. And they want earrings that they could actually wear. He started a fad. <laughs> oh, completely. It was so funny. I felt like I was like, like in college or something, like, <laughs> like we're being like A's or something. I said, yes, I've got the earrings. I'm going to go. I ran out and got all my studs. So now I've got like, I'm packing like 15 of these earring studs back up to the bar where uh, we continue to do, I think, how many people did you pierce? It was like six or seven people. Seven. Seven. I'm not particularly proud seven. of that, but yeah, seven. Two of them, I believe, still have the earrings in. It was amazing. The next day, it was like a, a full day kind of walk of shame, but funny, with all these guys wearing like little gold studs in their ears that were in the shapes of stars and moons and things that I would wear in my ear. <laughs> it's really great. So that happened, right? So when, when you're at sea, there's a thing called getting your shell back when you cross the equator. It's like a tradition, a sailor tradition. This is the thing that sailors do when they cross the equator. It's getting your shell back. And it's this whole ceremony that happens where somebody dresses up as Poseidon. You get like old food and weird stuff like thrown on you. Like you're you're basically like hazed and had the ceremony. And then you get your shell back and a little certificate saying that you crossed the equator, right? So it's a big deal. It's a big thing in the sailor world. We're going to cross the equator. And I thought to myself, you know, if this guy is so comfortable piercing people, I bet he would give a tattoo. I bet he could do it. So I thought to myself, instead of getting the shell back like that whole ceremony, I'm going to get him, you know, the, the Hadal scientist to give me a tattoo that represents like the Hadal zone, you know, like the science that we're doing. And so I approached him about this. And of course he was hesitant at first. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of putting it. He said, well, what kind of tattoo? And I said, and I asked him about what are symbols that would represent like the Hadal zone? Is there like a universal symbol for that? And he came back to me with the symbol of Hades instantly. I was like, That's the one. It's made That's for a tattoo it. though, isn't so cool. it? It's so crisp. Yeah. It's a great logo. Yes. Yes. And so I said, that's it. We're going to do that. Uh, maybe we can make like a little janky prison tattoo gun out of a pin because you know we don't have any we don't have any equipment we don't have anything on board so this is what i'm like gearing up for alan's going to give me this cool hades tattoo that's probably going to look like a three-year-old did it because we don't know what we're doing and we're on a moving ship no no it's not not your artistic skills at all i'm just saying we're on a moving ship we've never worked with these materials before it could get crazy but that's what I was ready for. I was excited about it. And then what happened, it turns out that I wasn't going to Australia. So I wasn't going to be a part of, of the shellback, the whole ceremony. So I had one day, I had one day left with, uh, with Alan when I found out this news. Like I found out the morning and it was like that the next morning that I was leaving. So I had 24 hours and we were, we were dockside. So I started calling tattoo places and asking, which is something that tattoos would, they would never do this, but for some reason we're in Guam. Is there any way that I can bring somebody in and they can give me a tattoo at your shop. And of course, the tattooers at first are a little hesitant on this one as well. <laughs> a little hesitant. Uh, a, a little hesitant. But, but you know, I tried to use my charm over the phone. And, you know, I told him, I said, hey, this guy's a doctor. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> So they, they, they went for it. They went for it. And we ended up going to get a, a tattoo that evening at this little tattoo shop in Guam. And they were, they were really nice. And they let Alan give me a tattoo, but not only me, but also uh, one of the, the sub team. I did too. I did too. And they were beautiful as well. Yeah. They turned out great. 
What was interesting is, is, is we only had three hours of leave. So the first hour yeah. went up to a tattoo shop. It, we, they were too busy. So we ended up drinking a couple of beers around the back of a quickie mart. Like totally like teenage did. kids going, are we really going to do this? Big list of things not to do before a tattoo. Yeah. The, guy, the guys in the tattoo shop were amazing. They were really good fun. So that took about an hour. And a few of us bailed down to the bar, scoofed a couple of beers, and then we're back on the ship again. And might I say, I thought I did a very, very beautiful job of it. You did a fantastic job. Very well done. And you know what's funny about ship people too is that we... Even if you give us just like an hour or three hours, we can make those three hours count. We definitely like use our time on shore. We can like, because I can come back and have like all these adventure stories, but I only went on shore maybe like a few times, but I'll have like a story for each time that I go on shore because it's like such a big deal. There are sometimes I remember that tattoo and I think, oh my God, there's somebody out there walking around Kentucky somewhere with the Mark of Hades tattooed on a forearm. And I smile every time I look at it. And when people ask me about it, I'm like, oh, well, let me tell you the story. I've told this story so many times and it's always a winner. Like, so the scientist, you're telling me that the scientist from the ship gave you a tattoo in some random tattoo shop in Guam after you all drank beers in a parking lot across the street at the convenience store. Yes, that's absolutely what happened. And here's the proof on my arm. See, that's what going to sea is all about. It's not whether or not you pack flip-flops or you have shampoo or not. That's what it's about. The funniest thing about all that is I did yours when the guy was watching me and he showed me how to do it and everything else. I did it, it was great. And then I went to do the other guy and the guy just sat back and started texting on his phone as if to say, well, on you go, you know what you're doing now. It's like, uh, could you could you at least supervise me a little bit? Trusting me 100%. It's like, well, you've already done a tattoo. So, you know, you just mind the shop for an hour. <laughs> it's a five-year course. It's like a college degree. You've got to get accredited as a tattoo artist. <laughs> <laughs> it just it just shows how confident you must seem because you look like a professional. Like I'm going to do a little episode on this whole thing because I have footage from. Well, we do, don't we? We filmed the whole thing, didn't we? Yes, we fil- we filmed the whole thing. So I'm going to make it make a, an episode on getting a tattoo from a scientist. The mark of Hades. The mark of Hades. <laughs> it is amazing. Could I use that in the logo for this episode? I always put a few images in there. Yes. Oh, cool. Please. That's great. Yeah. Oh, yes, please. Yeah. That's that's another reason like I wanted to start the YouTube channel and stuff was because I wanted to show scientists in a different light. I think people have this misconception that all scientists are really stuffy and by the book and no fun, but that's not it at all. And I think that old stereotype is backfiring a bit right now. A lot of the mistrust in science is the sort of slightly holier than thou, slightly condescending, you know, Absolutely. non-fun scientists. And I think a little bit of humanity, even though we don't usually communicate in that way like when we write scientifically i think a little bit of humanity really bridges that gap and like no we just we know what we're talking about it's okay i think if you sound too authoritative then people rebel against that right right and that's that's another thing that uh during this pandemic because that's when i started the youtube channel one of the things that i wanted to get across was like you said like bringing the human back into into science and also because scientists, I know, can have problems communicating with the general public because of, you know, like the words that they're using, the general public just doesn't understand. And so that adds into like, you know, that idea of like they're in their ivory tower, they're on their pedestal and they're talking down to me. With the channel, what I'm trying to do is break down uh, complex concepts into easy to digest, fun and uh, entertaining episodes so that people want to watch it and they want to feel connected to these scientists and they want to feel connected to the science because then they're part of that world. They're not on the outside looking in anymore. They're actually a part of it and excited about it. And then that builds trust also. Well said. Absolutely. It it so needs to be done. And it's a totally different skill set. Like you say, some people are just, they're not cut out to it. They're brilliant scientists, but they cannot tell a room of people what they do. No, no, and that's and that's that's just it. So when that when I showed that first scientist in my YouTube episode, 
And he was so excited. That's what he said. He said, we're scientists. Like, this is our jam. This is what we like to do is to go out. Like he said, I like going out in the field and collecting this data and doing this stuff. But I don't necessarily want to tell a room full of people about what's going on or explain it, you know, in ways that people are going to easily understand. He said, when I start talking, their eyes glaze over and they're not involved anymore. (laughs) Like they're just not into it. And so what I'm doing is I said, oh my gosh, let me be that bridge. I want to be the bridge. I can communicate to these people. I can take what you're doing and then breaking even the theories and the things like that and break it down so that people get, you know, that they, they want to be involved and they're not scared anymore. We see where fear gets us. So what's next for you then? Got bigger ambitions for the YouTube channel? Are you going back to sea or what's, what's next for Larkin? What's next for Larkin? All right. So here's the plan. The plan is that I do go back to sea because I have an interesting perspective. And I think it's very important also to show women in, in this field, like to give you a, a quick stat, that's crazy to me. In the US, the USA, there's 200,000 sailors out of that 200,000 sailors, only 15,000 are women. And out of that 15,000, like very few are captains or mates or anything. So it's like, it's, Hmm. we're still like such a small section. So I I definitely want to stay on ships and show like, you know, women in that field. But at the same time, in my free time, I'm going to be doing more videography work. I definitely, in a few years from now, I mean, hopefully like in the next couple of years to take my sailor hat off and put on my videographer hat full time so that I can travel around the world. I want to be sort of like a Anthony Bourdain of the science community, where I go out to these, I know, right? I go out to like these, I visit these different scientists in different parts of the world and I showcase the work that they're doing. Also talk about, you know, why it's important to the general public that's watching. How does this relate to you? Why do you care? So uh, shameless plug, if there's any scientists out there that are looking for a videographer, please come over to mysaltysealife.com. You could hire me. What was that address again? Mysaltysealife.com. Got it. There will absolutely be demand. We'll put links in the show notes. Please do. Please do. You can, you can see some of my work there. My goal really is to bring your research to life. That's what I want to do. I want to get their work out there so the general public can see it. And then through them seeing it and starting to support it, then that goes back full circle into the scientists because now they're getting support from the general public. I think you should uh, hijack the Anthony Bourdain idea. That's a great format for a show where you just go around the world, meet interesting people and take them out for beers and food. That's exactly what I want to do. Kind of like showing the culture, like what the life is like there, because I also want to show that humans, like we're all more alike than we think we are. And so take like the mystery, not only out of scientists and the science world, but also just like the world in general showing like, hey, look, these are just the local people here and this is what they do. So it's kind of like a full, like a well-rounded show. I hope that nobody takes my idea. That's that's Larkin's idea, mysaltycealife.com. <laughs> the other one I wanted to do was like a little bit on social etiquette and the culture offshore. Every single safety tour I've ever had is, this is the mess, there's no segregation, sit where you like. And every first meal I've ever had is, whoa, you can't sit there, so-and-so sits there. You know, <laughs> it's not official, but sailors are such, are such creatures of habit. And they've been on for like six months before you turned up. Everyone has their yes. own seat. So don't just plonk down yes. <laughs> because you were told no one has seats. So weird little things like that to, to avoid those faux pas. Social etiquette on ships is interesting. You're in a you're in a very dynamic environment. You eat together, you sleep, you play, you work all in the same little world on that's kind of floating around on the water, like its own little community, you know? And so you have to realize that if there's any differences that you may have, like any arguments or anything that you may have with somebody, you 
want to take care of them as soon as they happen. Treat people how you would want to be treated. You want to keep good social standings with everybody. You want to uh, be a team player. I think one of the greatest pieces of advice of social etiquette involves uh, vomiting. In, in that if you're on bunk beds and you're on the bottom bunk and you're about to puke, don't stand up and then puke into a bag at the same level as the guy in the bunk above you because that's one very quick way of getting a punch in the face which makes the whole thing even worse. Other things too, like, okay, so you're usually sharing a cabin with somebody. Yeah. You have to be conscious of of them. So uh, noises, noises on ships, things carry so much further than you think that they're going to. So make sure when you're talking in your room to somebody, you don't mention anything that you maybe not, don't want the person next door to you to hear. Because I know that's happened a few times where somebody is talking about a certain somebody and they can like hear them. And that also goes for like slamming doors or going up and down steps. Like be conscious of your surroundings and what rooms or around you, or you're like running on deck, don't run on deck, because they think to themselves like, oh, like that's that guy who does that thing. Don't be that guy. Yeah, that's quite a newbie thing. Never run anywhere. That that will always get you told off. Even even a brisk pace will usually get you told off by the crew. Yes, yes, you can you can tell right away. And also with the with scientists, right? Letting the crew do their job. I've seen a lot of times like on research vessels, scientists like wanting to grab at things or wanting to make the impossible possible because they don't understand like the dynamics of weather and how much that can affect what's going to happen on the ship and what the ship can and cannot do. If it's your equipment, definitely be right there with the deckhands and stuff, but talk to them, talk to the, your ABs, talk to your deckhands before things even start happening so that everybody's on the same page. Having a game plan is very important. Scientists might say, okay, we need to go to this, this, and this location and it needs to happen in the next like two days it may be impossible because we may come into get weather we may come into a number of, of reasons why like things might not work out the way that you initially thought so be very flexible i feel like that's like the number one rule on ships is just be flexible anything can happen and it probably will so just be ready and yeah and just just be ready for anything that triggered a little bit of advice i used to always give the people i was taken away for the first time and it was the only thing worse than not helping is trying to help and get in the way like if, yes. you, if you've not got your banksman's ticket, if you don't know about lifting procedure and the signals, right. just just stay, step back, especially if there's a gantry way or something, stay clear of the load. Don't mm -hmm. don't try and help because it's not it's not your place to do it. <laughs> don't don't be a hero. Yeah. Don't be a hero. Don't grab that rope. It's OK. It's, a, it's just a rope. Back. Let it go. <laughs> just, just let it go. Let it go. It's OK. Look at all these people out here working hard, getting this thing back onto deck or putting it off like you don't need to be, you know, a hero. At the, but at the same time, once, um, you know, once a scientist had been on board for a while, I've and this has happened almost every time. Once they've been on board, they start to work hand in hand with us, you know, because it is their equipment and they start getting more comfortable with like our equipment and how our crane system works or our A-frame works, all these things. And so just, yeah, don't rush it, scientists. Yeah, don't it. rush it. You'll get ease, invited. Ease into it. You are totally <laughs> going to get invited. We want you to be there. We want you to be a part of it. But you have to like, you have to know what you're doing first. So definitely like observe stand back for a little bit and then when you you know before you know it you'll be you'll be working hand in hand with us and to be honest you tend to get invited absolutely you'll be invited in a f after the first couple of lifts you know you'll be given a fairly simple job and then you'll you kind of earn your wings yeah. and before you know it you're you're yeah. right in there and and also seasick pills the throwing up thing that you talked about dr dre mm -hmm. yes like that is that's a thing and i feel like we actually just recently had a bunch of marines and army people on one of the vessels i work on and they were very oh i don't need to take any seasick pills i've got this blah 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 yeah right like a lot of them were definitely out for a couple of days and that's understandable like if, if you're not used to it just take the seasick pill ahead of time and it will save you so much anguish like 
it's much better to take the little seasick pill. One little pill. No one no has to deal. know. No <laughs> one has to know. You can, do it. you can do it on the low. Nobody's going to know. And then you're taking the chance that you're going to be out of the count for two days, just, you know, hugging a porcelain bowl and cursing yourself for not taking that seasick pill. You can test it out a couple days into it, you know, and say like, okay, maybe I don't need the pill anymore. I think it's important to take the pill, but also to wean off them. I think yes, some absolutely. people, they get almost a bit too worried about seasickness because I, I need to feel ill for three days. It's going to happen anyway. So I'll take the pills to soften the blow at yeah. the start, but I need to get my sea legs. And if I take the pills the whole time, because they make you so drowsy, even the ones they say they don't, it make you so sleepy. So I, I think you've you've got to at some point sort of ride through it, but you can soften soften the blow. Definitely. That's why I say like a couple of days. So like you take it the first couple of days and, and then ease yourself off of it. And chances are you, you have, it's like you've gotten your sea legs and you're used to it. Oh, and here's a pro tip. Drink lots of water. For some reason, it's helped me out. Like whenever I've been seasick in the past, I'm usually dehydrated and then I drink water and I feel better. I think the spot the early symptoms as well. Like a lot of people don't realize they're seasick until once you're at the nauseous stage, it takes a long time to reset. So the early yes. symptoms are a headache and feeling sleepy. Mm -hmm. And if you can have yes. a little lie down or take the pill then, you'll have a much easier ride. Once you get to the vomit stage, yes. especially when you can't keep the pills down, you'll get through it, but it's a much longer process. It's rotten. Yeah, you're at the point of no return. Yeah. I mean, it's bad. <laughs> you, you're taking the rough road, but you'll get there, but you're taking you the sure rough are. road. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. One thing I did want to drop in there is just that, especially the mates, they don't keep regular hours. You know, the four-hour watches... So don't kick open the door to the bridge and be super chipper. That might be the end of someone's shift, even though it's your breakfast. And don't go slamming those doors on the on the crew deck. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is such a good point and definitely needs to be included. Be mindful of where everybody else on the ship is at as far as their shift goes. I am very chipper. And when I first started working on ships, I would go into the bridge. Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing? Blah, 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 blah. And it was a lot for some. <laughs> somebody to take. <laughs> it's a lot for somebody to take, you know, who is just, who's been on shift for the last eight hours. And they've been driving the boat or something. Usually what the shifts are, um, like the mates will have a, a four hours on eight hour off shift. The, what that means is you've got, say, if you're the 12 to four, you'll have 12 noon until 4 PM. Like that's your shift. And then you're off from 4 PM until midnight. And then you work again from midnight till 4 AM. And then you're off from 4 AM until noon. And so it's good to be mindful of that. So for me, let's say a day in the life as a, a noon to midnight AB. So I'm working a 12 hour shift. So I wake up usually around 10 AM or so. And I do like, you know, my morning fitness. It's nice if you have a gym on board your ship, which we do. So I go to the gym, get my stretches in. And then from there, go have a little bit of breakfast. And then you show up to shift. What I do is I usually meet up with my AB partner and the other ABs that we're leaving. So there's two ABs that are going to come on at noon. And we're relieving the two ABs who have been on for the last 12 hours. And they're going to kind of relay what's been going on, what to look out for in the upcoming shift, anything that might've happened throughout the night. That's what we call like a handover. And then from there, it just depends on what the day holds, like what's going on that day. I work on the, the DSSV pressure drop, which has a submersible, a two-man submersible on board. So for me at noon, what I'm going to be doing is I'm actually, I'm getting a Zodiac ride out to my response boat, the communications boat. And I'm going to be communications from the submersible that at that point, will usually be about anywhere from six 
6,000 to uh, 10,000 meters below the ocean surface, I'm relaying their communications to the main ship, to the pressure drop. So I'll be following them around as they're bebopping around on the ocean floor. I'm following them around the surface and I'm letting the main ship know what's going on with, with the sub and vice versa. And I could be doing that for six to eight hours. And so you're out there on the seas I mean, and it's choppy, it's crazy, but you know, it's, it's fun. It's a, it's a really good time. And then from there, let's see, I, I would go back to the ship, you know, eat like a quick bite. And then we start pulling up the landers and then I would help, you know, retrieving those, getting those back on board. And then by the time that that's done, it's usually around like anywhere between 9.30 to, to 10.30 at night. So I've had like a long day. I get to change really quick and then I go up to the bridge and then I go on watch duty. And watch duty is, you know, like I grab a pair of binoculars and I'm up there with the mate who's driving and I'm keeping watch. So I'm looking out for navigational lights, any other ships that might be in the water, buoys that the mate needs help, you know, seeing like I'm a second pair of eyes up there. And I would do that until I get relieved at midnight. And then the same thing that happened noon happens again, where we hand over to the ship that's starting at midnight. So that's like a general day. Wow. Spot on. It's not a normal day, is it? <laughs> it's not a normal day. And again, shameless plug, if you'd like to see a day in oh, the sure life. Oh, sure do. <laughs> no, where, where can people learn more? <laughs> if only someone had made a video about this very topic. Oh my gosh, Thomas. I'm so glad that you said that. Totally because I did make I did I did make a video about that. Um, I've got I've got a couple of videos actually on my salty sea life on YouTube. One is called that I'd highly recommend to any scientists that are going out to sea to get a general idea of like what a day in the life for the scientists would be like. It's called Day in the Life as, as a sailor, but it's also for scientists. So that's there. And then also like, you know, my ride to work, like what it looks like for a sailor to get lowered down in a zodiac from a big ship then buzzed out to a smaller ship and like handing over while you're like at sea in these big waves what a wild environment that is i'll put links to well the whole channel of course but i'll put links to those specific videos so if you scroll down in your show notes uh you can jump right in on those the dynamic on board is is always fun and enjoyable and especially if you're you're with a good crew scientists out there definitely befriend the deck crew and the engineers on board because they are just as interested in what you're doing as you are as what they're doing so definitely share your work that it wouldn't be possible without them so show them what their hard work has achieved like show them at the end of the day we found this and check out this video and check out this specimen yes it seemed like it was like i was at a sixth grade dance or something where like the scientists are at one end they're on one wall the ship crew is at the other end and like nobody wants to talk to each other we're all just kind of like shuffling our feet and kind of like nervously looking around like chattering but nobody like makes the first step so be the scientist to go walk over to the deckhand side and say hey i'm so and so and this is what i'm doing and i think what you're doing is really interesting make conversation because it's going to open up so many doors absolutely ask about storms that's always a good way in ask them the worst storm they've been in every every <laughs> sailor's got a good storm story every sailor's got a good storm it could be story. their first like, day they've never been to sea but somehow they have a, a storm story yes it's it's true i've got i mean i've got i've got loads of those it's an easy in going boat what's going boat when you realize how strange you've gone while being at sea, how you now speak in in-jokes and you've kind of all drifted off the norm, and then and then you come back to land and no one understands you and you try and explain like, oh, and this was super funny, and they just stare at you because they need six weeks of in-jokes to get what you're saying. Yes. When you've been on ships for a while and you've been with this tight group of people, you create these bonds that are very hard to explain. It's almost like ship time versus land time. Yes. Ship time seems a week can be like 
it almost seems like a few months. Like a day is like a week because so many things happen in each given day and you are just with these people nonstop that you really form these tight bonds. It's hard to explain. It's like when you look back on it, it's like, oh, that went by fast. But while it's happening, you think, ah, I feel like I've been here for It's your years. whole life. It's your whole life. It's your whole life. It becomes your family, like your boat family. It does. Not saying that ships are like summer camp. You're around people that are also interested in the same things that you're interested in. There's like this sense of adventure going on, you know, like what's going to happen next? We're out on the sea. It's adrenaline's kind of romantic. Up. So adrenaline's up. People are feeling good. They're looking good. They're doing active things. And so like, yeah, like I think romances happen on board, but just beware. You can't get away. You're living in a soap you can't opera. Go any- you, can't, you can't go anywhere. So definitely uh, make wise decisions while on board. Decisions that you can live with because you're going to have to. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. I think with that, I'm going to have to say thank you very much, Larkin. That's been absolutely fascinating. It was exactly what we needed. That was exactly what we needed. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you all for having me. I love what you all are doing with this show, bringing funny into science. And uh, it was just, it was a pleasure being on here. Thank you so much. Hello, this is explorer and oceanographer Don Walsh. Today, I'd like to talk a bit about women at sea traditions and reality, or more correctly, superstitions and reality. First, let's look at the past. When thousands of years ago, the Phoenicians, Egyptians, Romans, and others carved and displayed female symbols on the bow of their vessels to protect them at the sea. Their spirits were to look ahead and help navigate ships safely. Also, sailors always considered ships as female, referring to them as she. While this may sound strange, referring to an inanimate object as a she, this tradition relates to the idea of a female figure, such as a mother or goddess, guiding and protecting the ship and its crew. The tradition of a woman figurehead guiding the ship was active from the 16th to the 20th centuries. But at the same time, women could not work on commercial and naval vessels because they distracted the crew, as their presence would anger the sea and cause treacherous conditions as revenge. This was also true for women carried as passengers. Sailor superstitions were not limited to having women on board. There are many superstitions. Some examples are flat-footed people, whistling because that might whistle up bad weather, starting a voyage on a Friday, and, wait for it, having bananas on board. Laughable now, but serious then. By the late 1800s, Technological changes brought by steam and iron spelled the gradual end of the figurehead as there was a loss of the sailing vessel's bowsprit where the figureheads were mounted. However, bow-mounted medallions or symbolic crests prevailed up through World War II, but none of them represented women. For the most part, the restriction on women at sea prevailed until the beginning of the 20th century. Clearly, this was not an absolute ban as from earliest time Probably thousands of women were carried as passengers. For example, when the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, there were women among them. As with everything, there were exceptions. Women who passed as men served as crews of merchant and combat ships. Wives of merchant and whaling captains were allowed to travel with their husbands, the captain, and uh, often were involved in duties aboard the ship, mostly concerned with navigation. In the 1700s, there were even a couple of English female privates. Anne Bonney and Mary Reed. Later, in the U.S. Navy, women nurses served shipboard from the Civil War to the present, but only in the nursing capacity. 
In the early post-World War II era, a very small number of women began to go to sea as working marine scientists. They were not welcomed with open arms by their fellow shipmates, the crews aboard the research ships, but they overcame it, and that's all in the past now. Since World War II, women have served in the Navy, both as officers and enlisted. During the war, they were called WAVES, W-A-V-E-S, which stood for Women Appointed for Volunteer Emergency Service. But they were all in shoreside jobs. None were at sea other than the nurses. Post-war, the WAVES were integrated in the regular Navy, and that colorful name was discontinued. Well, what's my history in all of this, my personal relationship to it? It began in 1951 when I first went to sea on the battleship Wisconsin with no women serving on board or any other USN ship at that time. Then I was in my first year as a midshipman at the U.S. Naval Academy, and of course there were no women among the 4,000 midshipmen at the academy at that time. The idea that men and women would ever serve side by side at sea was laughable. That was true in my case. I served 24 years on active duty and never at sea with female crew members. In fact, it was not until July 1976, a year after I retired, that it changed. That summer, 82 women were among the 1,300 midshipmen sworn in as members of the class of 1980. Remarkably, 52 of them graduated, and that's well above the dropout rate of the male midshipmen. It was the mid-1960s that all of this changed for me. I was a doctoral student in oceanography at Texas A&M University, and during that time, I was occasionally chief scientist on expeditions in the Gulf of Mexico on board the A&M's research ship Alaminos. One of my shipmates was a female PhD chemical oceanographer, and believe me, she was as good a shipmate as any man I've ever gone to sea with. Hardworking, dedicated, and she knew how to handle the guys and the crew that didn't really approve of her being on board. And there's another personal experience. In the 1980s, governors of California appointed me to two terms as a member of the California Maritime Academy's Board of Governors. During my 10 years on the board, there were many female cadets. And even the president of CMA at one time was a woman, in fact, a former nun. I actually chaired the search committee that selected her. And I told some of the disgruntled males who complained to me about this that she was, in fact, the best man for the job. As I recall, two female CMA graduates became the first U.S. Merchant Marines licensed unlimited tonnage captain and the first unlimited tonnage chief engineer. We're all very proud of that. And it was breaking down that glass ceiling, if you want to call it that, and letting women aspire to the highest positions in the seagoing Merchant Marine. And probably one of the most interesting stories during my time at the California Maritime Academy was a 50-year-old grandmother who ran away to sea. She had raised all her children, she was living by herself, and she decided to go to sea. So she started off as a freshman cadet at the Maritime Academy and graduated number one in her class. Not only that, when she was living in the dormitory facilities, she kind of became house mother to the much younger cadets and helped mentor so many of them and helped them with their classes and their after-hour study projects. Well, what's the present situation? It was not until 1961 that the first woman officer was assigned to shipboard duty, and it was not until 1993 that Congress approved women to serve on combat ships. At that time, 33 women were assigned to seagoing positions on warships. Now, 
in 2021, there are over 52,400 women serving in the Navy as officers and enlisted personnel at both at sea and on shore. Today, several women have commanded USN warships and some of them in combat situations. Several have become admirals, the first being selected in 1972. And in 2014, the Navy selected its first female four-star admiral. In addition, all of the enlisted technical specialties are now populated with trained young women. Since my retirement from the Navy in the mid-1970s, I've sailed with many women shipmates and in many parts of the world. With few exceptions, I found them to be superb mariners. In my view, this is because they had to work so hard to enter a male-dominated profession. They just had to stay up a little bit later, work a little bit harder, and it paid off. Change is slow, but it's inexorable. They are in our future. So when you're on a cruise ship or perhaps a ferry boat, you hear a female voice saying, this is your captain speaking, pay attention because you're sailing with the best. Well, that's all for now, and thanks for listening. How to behave at sea? Wayne said, get to know the names of the chefs and stewards. These people work incredibly hard. If you really enjoyed something, let them know. You'll be more likely to have whatever you liked again for a meal in the future, but they really take pride in their work, and it's great to get feedback. Along those lines, clean up after yourself. There'll be different rules on different boats, but you probably have to gather your own plates and do what you can to be helpful to the stewards. Also, it's worth bearing in mind that the mess is not a social area, even though it's nice to feel social while you're eating. It is a production line. There's never enough seats for the amount of people on board, and they have to get everyone fed within quite a short time. So get in, be decisive, eat your meal, and if you've started a nice conversation, take it to the lounge so you free up your seats for someone else. I'm sure this will get mentioned during your tour, but vessels have a limited amount of fresh water, and they'll probably have a plan to make their own fresh water, but it is always limited. So don't go mad on your showers, don't waste fresh water. It's uh, actually quite a precious commodity at sea. Take some things to see with you that you'll really miss, you know, like special treats, really nice food, chocolate, biscuits, maybe some drink if you're allowed, um, or some really nice toiletries. Always nice to have something to look forward to. Hi, I'm James. I've been working offshore for 15 years. My advice is to pack warm clothing no matter where you are going. Just because it's warm on land doesn't mean it's warm at sea. When you're working on deck at 3am, you'll be glad for the extra layers. Also, walking around for 12 hours in work boots on a metal deck will ache after a while, so take lots of pairs of thick socks to help you keep dry and comfy. You're likely going to need something to do during weather downtime that isn't just watching a series or loads and loads of movies back to back. Um, if you're not the athletic type or you're into your gym, then you could have a training plan. Um, some people I've known have taken sewing machines and fabric to see and made clothes and other things. Hi, my name is Natalia and I'm one of the communication managers of the Euromarine Oyster Young Scientist Working Group. So when you go on a scientific cruise, always remember to pack, if you can call it pack, lots of music. All kinds of music, for all moods. And science-wise, I won't forget to pack extra lab material. You never know what you can get or see during an oceanographic cruise. It is a unique opportunity. Have a nice day. 
My top tips are eat ginger biscuits. They help settle your stomach. The ginger especially is well known to do that. If you're in a scientific meeting, always sit closest to the door because after a couple hours of staring at a screen in a moving ship, you will feel nauseous and the faster you can get on deck and look at the horizon, the better. Well, there is a company called Active Brew that do a gingery drink that has electrolytes in it. It's for um, runners and athletes, um, but that will be good when you are puking. Don't smoke a pipe. You won't look like Captain Haddock, but you might look like you're trying to substitute for a personality. Hi, uh, this is Giuseppe uh, from the Euromarine Young Scientist Working Group, which is basically meant to orient uh, young scientists in the world of marine science. In the last few years, I joined uh, more than 20 research expeditions around the world. And I think I do have a few tips to share with you guys. And, uh, but probably the most important one uh, would be to bring with you some earplugs, because as you can see, the engine can be quite loud from time to time. And just remember to always have fun. Bye-bye. No one menstruates. Don't mention it ever, in any context, for any reason. Having said that, if you do menstruate, don't drop your moon cup in the toilet, or at least remember to bring your spare on shift with you. It doesn't matter how many other women are on shift with you, I guarantee you that not one of them will have a spare tampon and everyone will be sharing a cabin. No one wants to wait 20 minutes while the medic hunts for a multi-use absorbent dressing to tide you over until shift change. Sometimes people go AWOL at sea because they want some time to themselves. Still check in with them, but if you get the vibe that they need some time on their own, just give them some space. Some ships still don't put a rubbish bin in the cabins. I've been told on multiple safety tours that there are no bins in the cabins for obvious reasons. Find the chief steward immediately and tell them that you'd like a bloody bin because uh, you're not sure which of the many recycling bins to place your bloody bloodies into. Don't be an arse. Um, small spaces and limited social interactions tends to reduce people's tolerances of arses. Good table manners are paramount. I once had to get up and leave the table because someone was hammering into ribs like a Neanderthal. Try to keep your music and general electronic device output volume at a reasonable level. Not everyone loves ear-blisteringly loud drum and bass. See the point about not being an arse. And on a slightly more serious note, if, um, if working offshore affects your decision-making regarding hormonal contraception, um, like trying to avoid menstruating offshore, then do keep an eye on your sex drive and find a contraception that works for you and don't do what I did and kill your sex drive for going on 10 years until you realise that hormonal contraception is ruining your life. There tends to be at-sea jokes and at-sea humour. A word of warning, leave them on the vessel. Land folks don't care and no one gets the jokes. Anything in the data that resembles a dick is always funny. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. As ever, we'll deep see you next time and we abyss you already.
The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you would like to explore the deep sea yourself, we can help you out with technology and know-how. Or if you would like to bring the deep sea to your audience, we can offer storytelling, content, facts checking, and podcasting. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. Hello? Guys? Guys? Come on, this isn't funny. Did you all seriously forget me and lock me in the podcast? <sighs> how unprofessional. Okay, no telling how long I'm gonna be stuck in here, so what do we have to eat? Let's check the fridge. Hmm, shells and shells of lager beer. All right, <laughs> let's check the cupboards. Oh, nice. More beer and... Oh, look, there's whiskey too. Wait, wait, what's this? Dr. Tom's Vegan Potatoes Birthday Cake Flavor? Beer and cake-flavored potatoes for the unseeable future. It's a good thing I always have my camera because this is going to get very interesting and make a great YouTube video.